Welcome back. This week we have news. A rebrand has happened in the dead of night and this podcast will now be called Out of the Question. The format will remain the same in that I'll ask set questions. There just won't necessarily be 10 of them. Hopefully that'll give guests a bit more breathing space. So, our first guest under the new moniker is the screenwriter and satirist Chris Taylor. Post-university, Chris started off as a cadet journalist for ABC News in Melbourne before moving back to Sydney and writing full-time for The Chaser newspaper. He soon became a fully-fledged member of The Chaser and was the distinctive voice in all the group's iterations. Chris's other works include being a presenter on Triple J, writing shows and songs with his Chaser pal Andrew Hansen, creating the half-hour drama Upright, starring Tim Minchin for Foxtel, and now being a team captain on the Australian version of Would I Lie to You, screening on Monday nights on Channel 10. I love this chat. Smart guy, Chris Taylor. As our talk unfolds, you get why the Would I Lie to You team have put him in the David Mitchell chair. I started off by asking Chris, how he thinks his co-workers would describe him. Well, I guess that it would depend on the workers and it would depend on the project, maybe. Do you know, like, there's projects there where you're neck deep in on um, and that I'm incredibly invested. And I think on those projects, I'd be a little bit testing. Um, <laughs> it, only because, you know, you know when the care factor is high, your, your manners are low sometimes. And, yeah. and it's not endearing. But it's it's a reality of caring sometimes, but but then there'd be other projects that um, the care factor isn't so high. And I'd like to think it's a really hard question, Adam, because you're basically it's a snooker question. Because if you say, "Oh, they'd all love me," you look like a douche, and if you say, "No, I'm an awful person," because you're playing self-effacement, you also look like a douche because you've admitted to being awful. So it's <laughs> You've, you've kicked off with a gotcha, basically. Your Herald Sundays aren't behind you. <laughs> um, I, look, I, I think I'm getting better as a collaborator. Um, if you spoke to the best known of my colleagues, which would be the Chaser guys, um, I think they'd be broadly nice, but probably say I was a bit controlling. Um, I tended to be the one in the room that rewrote things that, uh, that kind of dominated the writer's room a little bit just by, I mean, I was the script editor on that show and maybe I thought that gave me license to um, sort of be a little bit more vocal creatively than some of the others. It was, I should say, it was an incredibly democratic room. The Chaser was a very collegiate creative uh, band uh, of, of, of writers with different skill sets and different comedic sensibilities. Um, but yeah, I tended to be the one that wrote a lot and, and occasionally rewrote other people's stuff, um, or demanded better. And Chaz was a bit like that too, for different reasons. So, I mean, everyone cared incredibly about the show, but, um, some people cared a lot more about editing. I, I rarely cared about editing. I was the script junkie. I was, uh, I was yeah. sort of that guy, you could relate to this, that, thought if get it right on the page and we'll be okay. Yeah, um, yeah. Whereas Craig Rucastle, who, who I love to do, and, and I'm sure as a regular listener of the podcast, he's he's quite relaxed on the page. He's sort of almost bullet point scripts. And he'll he's sort of like, it'll be all right in the end. It'll just come <laughs> together. And I'd, I'd have sort of have to script out of his scripts and it almost didn't make sense. You could have been looking at hieroglyphics for all I knew. that it, 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 There was sort of no structure 
there was there was no evidence of someone that had ever picked up a screenwriting handbook. It was sort of just, you know, thoughts. And and these were shooting scripts sometimes. And he'd go out and and shoot, and God knows how the director or the crew made head or tail of it, but he'd be there and sort of winging it. And then he'd come, he'd piece it together in the edit suite. It was always this amazing piece. And, it was there was something kind of is that because he had confidence in the back end he had confidence in his ability to wing it on the day and then in his confidence in his ability to cut it together absolutely absolutely and, and that is craig to a t um, yeah very confident and and at his best in the moment he's, mm. he's he, yeah, i'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying he's, he's not a natural writer he's not someone like me who's polar opposite um who would sit down and do all the work sort of at the laptop mm. and then and then not be very good in the moment at all when it came to shooting things, or, 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 do, or do the script serviceably rather than be spontaneously open to other possibilities. So, right, yeah, yeah, I get yeah. That. I, so they, yeah, they, those guys would probably say I was a little occasionally controlling, but but broadly okay. But it, it it's so. I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, I'm be interested in your thoughts. You. You, you're sort of like a chameleon in a way. You you adapt depending on the room you're in. And mm. it's often like biggest alpha wins. Because mm. I'd like to, and I, I just did another show with Andrew Hansen uh, for the ABC. And again, I was a bit worried that I was sort of, we, you know, we, we set it up to be equal creative partners. And we were, but every now and then when it came to writing song lyrics, I'd sort of be the one rewriting or pushing for more rewrites and that kind of thing. And, and then really wanting last pass on the scripts and all of that kind of thing. And and I go, yeah, that's maybe just because Andrew's a bit more lovely and a bit more compliant and I'm a bit more bullish and alpha. But then I did, I was in a writer's room for a year um, making a TV show called Upright with Tim Minchin. Oh, yeah, yeah. And anyone in that writer's room listening to this wouldn't recognise the person I'm describing. Like, I, because when you put... Um, a bigger creative force in a room, a bigger alpha, someone like Tim Minchin, who's amazing, then suddenly I go, in, not into a shell, but but recognise. Like, <laughs> it's a bit like a David Attenborough doco, isn't it? It's like two, two silverbacks and one silverback realises I can't match it with this guy. So I kind of shut up. I was quite quiet in the in the upright writer's room and, and Tim sort of became the what I did in the chaser room, Tim became in the upright room. And, and that's all really appropriate because it's, we, we have, we coined this phrase energyocracy, which was whoever's the most energetic normally wins the room or yeah. whoever's got, whoever's got the most passion for the, the storyline they're pitching for or the joke they're pitching for, they win. And I think in chaser writers room, I was quite a good energyocrat. <laughs> and, yeah. and because I'd never done drama, before or, or any scripted narrative work, I knew I was on my training wheels and upright. So I appropriately took more of a back seat and let another energy of crap step up. And I, <laughs> so it's, it's sort of, this is a very long-winded, tedious way of answering your question. It's, it's the same writer can be extremely different depending on the room, don't you reckon? Oh, mate, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I'm, I'm the, um, I think I'm probably at my best when I'm the leader, but you know, when I was in American writers' rooms, I was new boy. Mm. You're meant to pretty much shut your mouth for the first two weeks you're in, a, in an American writers' room. Just out of, like, politeness protocol. Yeah. Just, as, just, the, as the new guy. 
as the new guy, and my mistake, and I should have set this up at the start, is I, I talked too much in my first room straight away. Right. And um, was a little too comfortable, a little too cocky, and didn't know my place. And then after that, I realised, so, you know, someone just said to me, just just for the first few days, mate, just shut wow. up. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm a big believer in a room and, and, and a project need a leader. Um, one of the, one of the mm. problems perhaps on the Chaser show was decisions were made very slowly because there was no single person going, okay, there's all these ranges of opinions. This is the call. <laughs> we, we trod so carefully and, and laboriously to try and satisfy the, the group. And so in the end, you know, that, that only lasted so long. And, and that's when we did start putting structures in place where, okay, Chris will be the script editor, Julian will be the EP, um, people will be in charge of their own pieces in the edit. So it's before, like we were in the early days of Chase, that all six of us were in the edit suite, like signing off on edits, and it was just ridiculous. <laughs> I don't know how you did it. I don't oh, know how you... It barely made it to air some weeks because we, we took like four hours on every edit. But... It was a noble attempt at democracy and, and, and a good example of where democracy might not be the best system. <laughs> I, I, lo I love it, mate. Exactly. Um, second question, what's the most unhelpful feedback you've received? Do you know what it probably was? And I'm always a little bit loath to, to bring this up, but I'm happy to go there for you, Adam. Um, it, <laughs> it, was, it was after the biggest shitstorm chaser outrage uh, after the, we did a sketch called the make a realistic wish sketch. Yeah. And it, you know, it was, it was in the newspapers for two weeks. The chaser were hated. The ABC suspended the show for a fortnight off air just to try and hose down the, the fire. And we got advice after that. And to be honest, it came as much internally amongst us as from any um, network executives. In fact, I'd say it mainly came from some of us, but not all of us. And it was to um, think of the audience a bit more. Uh, think of impact of jokes. Think of impact of pieces. Uh, second guess consequences of a script. And it's... In isolation, we all know that's the worst advice you can ever give to any writer. At the time, it, it was quite reasonable advice because everyone was a bit shell-shocked at having um, put a sketch to air that led to genuine anger. We, we can have a debate about whether that anger was warranted or a bit distorted by the media, but it, there was no question we'd gone through a shitstorm and, and it changed our behavior as writers afterwards. We we didn't put things to air that we otherwise would have put had we not gone through that. And I was, I supported the, that sort of, it wasn't a hard rule, but it was sort of just a general, just a note that yeah, yeah. we were all just, everyone was just a little bit gun shy. Everyone was just a little bit safer which is the worst thing for a comedy team to ever be, especially a comedy team like The Chaser, whose entire brand was to be unsafe and to always test the limits of yeah, yeah. acceptable conduct and wrong humour and black humour. And um, So, yeah, yeah, the worst advice I ever got was to pull bunches. Um, yeah. 
and, 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 and I'm not angry at the advice. I'm angry with myself for accepting yeah, the advice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'd like to think it was only, I, 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 don't, I don't live by that advice now. It, 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 it took a sort of year or so of rehabilitation to get back your comedy confidence <laughs> yeah. um, or, your, or your inappropriateness confidence. But, it, <laughs> but yeah, it, was, it, it shocked me. What shocked me was that there are a couple of guys in the team who were really advocating for that, just thought it was sensible. Like, from a, almost from a PR point of view, like, just let's just get through the rest of this season without another one of those shitstorms. And I think, we, of course, that was <laughs> completely appropriate and desirable. But it, where it was bad advice was the assumption, like, because we, that, that sketch was entirely consistent with many, many sketches we had put to air previously that hadn't resulted in that sort of uproar. So the advice seemed to imply that we had erred, that we had crossed a line, whereas I was never completely sure we had. I just thought we'd, we'd hit a, a fault line through a confluence of various things that, that sort of sparked that eruption. Mm. Um, I, I wasn't and still aren't sure that that it's not a broadcastable sketch. Mm. And as I say, I think it's entirely consistent, at minimum consistent with other things the Chaser had done. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and possibly even less offensive than other things we put <laughs> Um So, so yeah, I, I don't know. Does that answer the question? I, yeah, it totally does. I'm, I'm fascinated just to take it a little further and just go, what was, what is it like, you know, this is obviously before social media really. Mm, kind of yeah, thank God. Off, you know, yeah. I mean, so what was it like living through that? you know, round the clock news coverage and everyone having an opinion. I mean, obviously, you you know, you'd almost be scared to get on public transport, <laughs> you know. Oh, it was, well, I was. You, yeah. you don't. I mean, you know, we had security outside our houses. We, wow. um, I relocated. I went, I went and lived with my parents. Um, oh, my God. Because there were, uh, there was a journal on 2GB who gave out our, our addresses. Oh, my God. And almost with an invitation to do with them what you want, like oh, um, for telling a joke, <laughs> for writing yeah. a sketch. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it was hideous, to be honest. It was, it was wow. an absolutely awful, awful period. And you, it always upsets us when there's a sort of a narrative around any, any comedians who caught outrage. You know, Chappelle's been through it this year and so but like. I, I can't, I'm not going to speak for him, but, but speaking only for the chaser, no, no one I know in that team ever sets out to offend. It, it's no. not the end game to cause hurt or misery or anger. You, you get into comedy, as you know, to entertain. And yeah, yeah, hopefully yeah. to bring some light relief into an otherwise miserable world. Yeah. And so, yeah, you don't, you, you never caught that. And when it comes, it's, Oh, it's like it's it's death in the family type stuff. Like I just felt sick. Yeah. Uh, especially because I'd written it and was in it, and I just felt I felt like I'd let down the whole production office because um, they were all had targets on their back. I felt really bad for the actors in that particular piece who were kids. They couldn't go to school for two weeks. I mean, it was it was just a. I mean, talking about it now, it feels like the most absurd overreaction, and I'm, I'm sure it was, but it was very real at the time. Oh, it was. I remember. And so you were at your. Did you say your parents' place for two weeks? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And was there any? Was there any injury, or was there any kind of vandalism? Was there? 
when this guy gave out your addresses, was there any kind of repercussions from? No. Um, oh, that's good. No, I actually had a, <laughs> I did something really foolish. Um, I think it was a mate's, I want to say 30th. I can't remember. It doesn't really matter. A key birthday party and a very close mate. And it coincided with that fortnight. And he said, mate, you've got to come. I, I know you're in lockdown and everything. <laughs> <laughs> and there's death threats out on you. <laughs> but um, you've got to come. Um, I'm relying on you to be there. And I said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll be there. And he chose a restaurant in, in King's Cross, which, which back then was still a very vibrant part of Sydney. And also home to a particular bikey gang who sent a death threat to the ABC saying, if we ever see any of those chaser fuckwits, we're going to come after them. Oh so he invited me right into the lair, essentially, to, <laughs> to go sit with him in a restaurant um, in, in King's Cross where this particular bikey group hangs out. So my mum, <laughs> I was like 35 years old, I got my mum dropping me off in King's Cross. <laughs> and, and she's a bundle of nerves. And... Wouldn't you believe I'm early? So I'm like the first person at the restaurant. <laughs> the restaurant just so happens to have entirely glass windows. Anyone can see in. And I'm sort of sat there very prominently at a, at a table alone for, for the world to look into. And oh, I'm sitting there and my mate texts me, he goes, sorry, man, I'll be another 10. We're just held up at another bar or something. And then this, this very rough looking guy spots me from outside of the street stops, takes me in, and then comes into the restaurant. And I'm just thinking, oh, fuck, here we go. This is, this is everything my mum warned me about, everything the ABC security warned me about. This is why we're not meant to be out in public, particularly not out in King's Cross. And he comes up and he goes, mate, you one of them chaser guys? I said, yeah. <laughs> he goes, I just want you to know that piece was fucking funny. Oh. <laughs> oh. My heart just sank. I mean, and I, I bought him a beer. <laughs> I, just, I, I, I was, I convinced myself I was going to go the other way and it was going to be bloody and messy. And Oh my God. And it, That's brilliant. Um, it was, yeah, it was, yeah. It, it, not, not many funny things came out of that whole experience, but that particular uh. story. I always enjoyed telling because it was just the, the the misdirect of his on. He, he looked like the very guy I'd been warned about. <laughs> he was all but carrying like a mace and. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, question three, mate. What is the failure you most cherish? You know, awful at the time, as all failures are, um, deeply humiliating. But I was terrible at theatre sports. Um, and, and, and died uh, awfully. And it's almost impossible to die at the university theatre sport. Like the crowd is pepped up, they're kind of coached to be warm. And, and I was just uniquely bad at it. Like just, and, and you, you sort of, you, you sign up to do a season of it or something and just week after week, just couldn't land a laugh. And was, got really nervous and really started overthinking it, which is probably the worst thing to do in improvisation. And, yeah, just, just disastrous at it. And it was, and it was a really good thing, I think, because I, I, I'd always felt funny. Um, I'm trying to think of a yeah, way yeah. of saying this no, without no, but sounding you, conceited. But, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I was, I was a comedy to. nerd. I, yeah, yeah. 
I lived and breathed it. I, you know, I could recite every Python film by heart. I, I knew the rhythms of it. And I, I knew I could even from things I'd written, like even at school, like for the school end of year review and stuff, that I kind of had a bit of funny at me. But what, what became incredibly apparent was that I wasn't a great performer. I certainly wasn't good on my feet. It, and, and it was that in that moment, in that theatre sports failure, that I think I learned that I'm actually a comedy writer and I'm never going to be a comedy performer. Um, so I've, I've never done stand-up. I don't aspire to perform. I don't think I'm... I, I do sort of... I play myself sort of in things every now and then, but I, I don't think I'm particularly good at that. Um, and, and so it was, it was... That was the real light bulb moment that... I didn't doubt my chops because even in my head, you know, like when you fail in anything, you go back to your bed that night and you go, oh, this is what I should have said. And I always came up with pretty good lines, you know, four hours after the fact. <laughs> yeah. But that, that just told me, okay, you should be a writer. You, totally, you've got time. Yeah. You, you can take two weeks to come up with a zinger. And, there's, and I'll, I still envy people that can do it in the moment. I think they've got a gift that I'll never have and, and they're brilliant. Um, but I think that's okay. I think there's there's room for both. And I'd like to think, you know, that I've sort of made an okay fist of being a comedy writer and 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 having yeah. learned, having got the rest out of the way. I know there are people who are brilliant, you know, Larry David or Phoebe Waller Bridge or um, you know, David um, what was I about to say, David Brent, Ricky Gervais and Louis C.K. So people who can write and perform and be brilliant at both. That's such an amazing skill set. I've, and I guess they just have a very singular voice. Someone like Larry David and Phoebe Waller-Bridge, it really, you know, it's, it'd be impossible to cast anyone else really in some of their, in, yeah. in those particular roles. Whereas I, I've grown to much prefer writing for other people. I, even, even today, like I still don't feel comfortable doing anything public like which is ironic i've got a i've just done the australian version of what i lie to you and i, I don't do panel shows for because for this very reason i'm not good on my feet <laughs> I, I was quite bewildered that i was cast in a way and i think i did it partly for the challenge just to see if you know it's something that can be learned or something but it's it was so interesting doing that show and watching brilliant people like lloyd langford and uh, Luke McGregor or Cal Wilson, people are so comfortable in the spot and it never made me anything other than full of self-doubt and fear. <laughs> <laughs> well, can I say, as an observer, you're, I think you're, you're, you're a great television presence. You know, I, I understand the, the theatre sports thing, but performing your own script and material, you're great. Um, so... I did see that, that. That's very generous of you, but I've always felt that I don't have a persona. And I reckon like the great writer performers or even just performers are people who have a voice. And I, I never really felt I had a persona. Like I always knew I'd written something quite decent as a joke. I had no sense of how to deliver it. Even, even in the world of like topical news, the difference between a Jon Stewart or a Sean McAuliffe and, and, and someone like me is, is huge. Like I, I don't think I value add in performance to any of the jokes I've written. And it's always been a problem. I'm happy to do them because I think there's an authenticity about the writer of a joke doing it and sort of coming from a place of, you know, well, it's coming from the source. But, yeah, I, I'm sure those jokes in better performance hands 
would be better. It's why I love writing for Andrew Hansen, whether it's a song or character pieces. He's got great performance chops. It was always a delight to put good jokes into a good actor's mouth. Whereas, he's got a similar cadence to you too. It, it, it's he got, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. We both learned from the Cleese kind yeah, of. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's, I want to believe the flattery you're giving me, but I, I've always felt if you had to, it's not just true of me, I think most of the Chase guys, you couldn't, you know, like with the late show, there was sort of Mick had a bit of a character, Tony had a character, Rob did his thing. And the Chase, I always felt we were all a bit interchangeable. We didn't really wear a persona hat. Either one that was created or a natural one that just comes from who you are. We we were all basically nerdy university writers who ended up performing our own jokes. Without we we never we came at it as from writers. I don't know how many other examples there are of there must be some I assume, but of people who only arrived on television screens as writers. Not I as, think, look. I think there should be more of it. By the way, uh, I think writers. I know we'd have your vote. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I, without doubt. Um, yeah. you're, you're someone who straddles. No, I, I've I've 100 come to the same realization you have. But just on the um on on about myself, I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> but just on the chaser thing, yeah, I remember the first year, maybe first season, maybe CNN, CNN, and um, <laughs> uh, then I, I was a little bit, I didn't know who you were, especially when Jules ha um, had hair. Um, <laughs> and it's, and, but then it was kind of clear that, you know, you were kind of the cool professorial one. Craig was the everyman. Chaz was the nerd. Uh, Andrew did the songs, you know, and, it, yeah. and, and it was kind of, you, you definitely, you definitely got a sense. So, you know, once you got those flying hours under your belt, your persona started to emerge a little clearer. That's interesting. Um, so I yeah. always felt like, I mean, they, yeah, they, they were never quite Spice Girls level of delineation, <laughs> and nor should they be. But, but I, I sometimes wondered if, even as a contrivance, how helpful it is for audiences to sort of have, oh, that's the one that, you know, I don't know, hates exercise or whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like we, cause it, cause attending this sort of thought is that we never really spoke about ourselves. Like, no. you know, I'm sure a lot of comedy teams, they do things that are personal. Um, like Mick kind of played the ladies man a bit on the ladies, yeah, yeah. on the late show, the ladies show, um, <laughs> the late show. Whereas we, ours was all external. You, we, I'm sure audiences had quite accurate assumptions about the kind of people we were, but we'd never mind our personal lives for comedy. No, it's like, like Still yeah. don't really. Yeah. Um, There's a bigger picture, kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I remember this uh, Logies that you and I were at. Um, we were at the ABC party at the Lindrum afterwards, and Mark Scott, who was head of ABC at the time, said, "So you're going to do another one this year?" And you went, Ugh. and I'm like, <laughs> and at the time I was like, I'm trying to get a fucking show up, and this yeah. guy's been offered <laughs> one on a platter, and he's going, oh, I don't know. Yeah. No, it's um. It's that awful thing, isn't it? Like when you're in the middle of it, it feels unimaginable to keep going. <laughs> I know. And, and, then, and then you've got to just be only a week out of it. You go, hang on, that, that's the most privileged, amazing thing that I just had. Why, <laughs> yeah. am, I, why am I being so flippant about it? Of course, yeah. A Andrew Denton said something really, really great to us that stayed with me. It's always stayed with me and because he was our producer for the early uh, early shows, our first election special in CNN and NN. I can't say it either. <laughs> uh, he just said, 
never underestimate the privilege of having a half hour on the national broadcaster. Like he goes, people, oh, wow. it's, it's, it's a huge audience. Yeah. People dream of that. And he goes, don't waste it. Like if you've got something to say, say it. Don't just fill it with, you know, jokes from your bottom drawer that, you know, you thought worked okay in your newspaper and might work okay too. Like use the moment. Hmm. And as I said, don't underestimate the privilege of it. It is, I mean, I'm sure you're the same. I grew up just worshipping the ABC and, mm. um, and, and valuing it as, as a consumer of news as much as comedy and, and drama and stuff. And, yeah, it, it is a very big deal to be on. And then, then when you sort of become not quite part of the furniture, but you, you, you've been on it for a few times and you, you think, oh, this is just my job now, you forget, it's, or at least it's easy to forget what a privilege it still is and yeah. that so many people would love that half hour yeah, and, and not right. to waste it, not just to go, oh, I'll go out drinking the night before the taping because, you know, there's another show next week, what does it matter? But no, every every minute of time on on any network, but particularly the national broadcaster, because it's such a it's such a you know treasured place in the hearts of many mm. Australians. I think yeah. So that, yeah, that, that always stayed with me. Yeah, yeah, that's a lovely thing for him to say. And thank God for that man. Mm. Um, which word or phrase do you most overuse? Do you know this is a really hard one? to ask the person who overuses it. Because don't you, I always think the person who's least aware of, <laughs> of their own language is the person who espouses it. Like, yeah. it, it, you need to ask my listeners or people who have to, listeners of this podcast could probably be, be screaming at their devices now, well, he said this word a thousand times already. <laughs> the, the, I actually don't have a good answer to this. The joke answer in a way, what my wife always accuses me of using almost daily is that I'll start a story going, I was reading today in The Guardian. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm sure she's true. And it's, it's and it, what I kind of like about that is it, it so brilliantly reduces me to a stereotype. Very, <laughs> is, of course, he's that fuckwit who just reads The Guardian all day. And then attends drinks and rehashes articles that people themselves have probably read, but he's going to be that fuckwit mansplainer to summarise it for everyone else. Um, I think I am guilty of that. Uh, <laughs> not just of reading The Guardian, which I do think is a genuinely <laughs> great, great newspaper and website, but it's trying to brand yourself at the same time. It's like you could just say, I, was, I read earlier today. But the, the detail of making sure people know you're a Guardian reader and not not a Daily Telegraph reader or an Australian reader. Like, and I was reading in The Guardian today. <laughs> a redundant phrase because whatever's following would make it clear it came from The Guardian because it's almost always about climate change or <laughs> or grace time. It's like, so right. <laughs> Brilliant, mate. Uh, finally, do you have a motto? I... I don't. And who does have a motto? Like, out of the, like, schools and weird old bowling clubs or something, like, who who has a Latin motto or, or <laughs> like, hung up outside their bedroom that reminds them? I don't have a... I don't have a motto in the sense of, yes, yeah, schools have mottos. <laughs> you're, if you're asking, which I think you're asking, do I have a kind of a philosophy or a... 
Yeah, Ooh. yeah, yeah. That's better, better, better. Um, I should get you to write these questions. <laughs> no, I don't. This the question. I, I, I just went to a school where they were very big on the school motto, and the only time I ever heard the word motto, I think, was in a school context. Um, look, no, I, 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 in terms of philosophies, I not really, or at least not consciously. I'm not one of those, you know, desktop calendar types who, you know, <laughs> has rules for living. The, the, the one I occasionally find myself saying, almost as often as I say, as I was reading this morning in The Guardian, um, is whatever works. And it's more, mm. it, it's more just a, a clarion call for non-judgment. Mm. Like whenever, you know, if people tell you about, oh, did you hear Steve and Sonia hooked up on the weekend? And everyone's like castigating them and say, how outrageous. And I'm always just, ah, oh, whatever works. Like, if it works for them. Who are we to? Yeah, yeah. And I'm like that with professionally, uh, um, in my personal life. If, if it, yeah, who are we to judge? It's yeah. sort of, if it, whatever works. Like, if, I, I think we're obviously living in an age where moral certainty and moral judgment is sort of having a moment on social media where people like, no longer believe in moral complexity. Like they, they mm. see something in the news and, and make a very quick moral judgment yeah. on it. The giddy mob climbs on and the, no alternative view is possible. And I always think, mm. no, no, you know, it doesn't work for you, but works for them, whatever works. Which one of those phrases you can really only say with a shrug. It's sort of, um, no, no one would angrily say whatever works. It's just, eh, whatever works. Um, the, the subtext of it too is sort of, Stop taking life so seriously. Mm. Like, lighten up. Like, it's let people live their own lives. Don't have a stake of everyone else's brain. Like, just, you know, if it works for them, good on them. <laughs>